This podcast was recorded on the date indicated with the link. The views and opinions expressed herein are as of the date recorded and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any securities. Such views and opinions may differ from those of DoubleLine Capital or its affiliates and are subject to change without notice. DoubleLine has no obligation to provide updates or changes. Hi, everybody. Uh, welcome to the Sherman Show. I'm Jeff Sherman, along today with my co-host, Sam Lau. Hey, hey. And today is Tuesday, July 5th, 2022, and we're recording live. And we have none other uh, with us today than Michael Green. He is the Chief Strategist and Portfolio Manager at Simplify Asset Management. Welcome to the show, Mike. Thanks, Jeff. I appreciate well, you and Tim having me. Yeah, no, absolutely. So where do we even begin with all of this? You know, I mean, you're, you're well-renowned out there in the space and, uh, you know, people have heard you and uh, some of your pontifications out there, but why don't you just walk us through briefly for those who don't know you, just a little tour de jour about how you got into the business and what you're doing today. Sure. So I, I've been in the business for a long time and have done everything from managing separate accounts, mutual funds, hedge funds, and now with Simplify, um, in the last two years, we've launched ETFs that allow us to do a lot of the strategies that I would have historically been known for in the hedge fund space. So things like derivative overlays, portfolios with protection, short volatility or long volatility type portfolios. Um, got started in the industry after um, you know, originally graduated from the University of Pennsylvania's Wharton School of Business, uh, went into management consulting and then into software development, sold a software company in 99, transitioned to the asset management space, um, and then um, uh, worked in primarily long-only roles through 2006, then joined um, a firm called Canyon Partners, which is down in Los Angeles. Most people at DoubleLine or TCW know it quite well. Um, and there I, I initially came in as an equity specialist, helping them to manage a cross-asset portfolio. And as the dynamics of 2006 morphed into 2008 and beyond, um, really finally had the opportunity to you know, begin to deploy some of the derivative strategies and macro strategies that you know, I've become reasonably well known for. Um, founded and ran the New York office of Canyon Partners, built that for myself and a small allocation to a team of about uh, 15 people running about $5 billion worth of allocation. Um, and then was given the opportunity to pull out of Canyon and launch my own firm, a firm called Ice Farm Capital that was backed by uh, the Soros Foundation. Um, did that for a couple of years. Um, found that uh, running money as a, as a uh, manager is very different than running a company. And for those of you who have been through that experience, there's all sorts of different dynamics associated with it. And maybe, um, ice, took farming, a, maybe ice farming is a little difficult to do in a world where there's the perception of global warming as well. Yes, exactly. Well, that, that, that was actually, so, so the irony of ice farm, a bunch of people ask me you know, where that name came from. I actually had as a vacation property a 19th century ice harvesting operation that um, was I always found to be a fascinating you know, glimpse in terms of how much the world can change. Because in 1900, the seventh largest business in the United States, roughly akin to cable television today, was actually ice, uh, the, the distribution and manufacturing of ice. In a world prior to modern refrigeration and air conditioning, it was literally the only way you could keep fresh food fresh, right? Um, well, it, it's strange as, a, as, as Americans too, our fascination fetish with ice, right? I'm, I'm always reminded that anytime I travel anywhere outside the US that we have that. And I will say one of the nicest buildings in my hometown is the old ice house where it was exactly one of those buildings where it was for Again, the production and distribution of ice. Uh, yeah, no, it was it was actually incredible. So this is a this is a vacation property that um, in the early part of the 20th century, like William Howard Taft came to visit it and everything else. So it was it was a lot of fun. Um, but anyway, um, uh, took a year off, did a sabbatical, and then Peter Thiel um, approached me about coming to manage a portion of his personal capital, and. 
things moved fairly quickly from there um, into kind of my current role where I'm at Simplify and, um, and the chief strategist and senior portfolio manager. We've launched somewhere in the neighborhood of 20 ETFs over the past two years. We've grown fairly rapidly. We're uh, about a billion and a half in AUM. Um, and it's been, you know, really exciting to, to step into a different role at this stage of my career and have the opportunity to work with retail as compared to large institutions, ultra high net worth individuals, et cetera. Yeah, uh, no, as, as you said, too, it's a different dynamic of running a business than necessarily running other people's money. And so, uh, I, you know, you, you talk about how fast and rapid the growth has been in Simplify. You have 20 products already. Um, the, the, the strategy you describe and you're known for, though, don't really fit in that world of simplify, right? If I think about, <laughs> I'm already hearing complexity, derivatives, hedging, convexity, things like that. So why don't you talk to me about how you're trying to deliver these concepts and ideas in the simplify wrapper? Sure. So that, that's actually exactly the right way to think about it is a simplify wrapper that is taking very complex products and strategies and allowing people to deploy them in portfolios without having to manage them in the fairly aggressive fashion that you actually have to manage these types of exposures. So for example, our flagship product is uh, the US equities with downside protection. Um, in order to deliver any form of effective or cost-effective hedging, you have to very actively manage a small portion of the portfolio in terms of option exposures. Right. And that can range from relatively straightforward and simple exposures that you can hold in periods of very low levels of implied volatility. For example, the world that, that we had from give or take 2016 through basically March of 2020 to today, when you're struggling with some of the highest levels of implied, you know, sustained implied volatility we've ever seen figuring out ways that you can deploy that so that it offers protection without crippling the portfolio is really quite challenging, right? And so we're simplifying that process for people by taking the budget that is allocated to hedging and using it as effectively as possible using the techniques we've developed over the past several decades. Um, another example of the simplify concept would be something like, which is our interest rate hedge product has captured a lot of attention because it's done extraordinarily well in terms of a rising rate environment you know, it's very easy to think about that from a directional standpoint, but the objective there was to create an asymmetric portfolio that if interest rates stayed low was not going to damage or kill a portfolio. If interest rates fell further, it wasn't going to damage or kill a portfolio. But in the event of rising interest rates, that portfolio needed to be able to offset the incredible what's referred to as duration risk that we've seen in the past year for bond portfolios, right? That duration risk had exploded because of the low levels of interest rates and relatively long tenor of many of the, the high weights within, within bond indices. Um, you know, so that product is a very complex product to create. It requires us to get what's called an ISDA, right? Which is a effectively a lending agreement between a broker and a fund. Um, you have to negotiate that process and go through a process of basically becoming a preferred creditor or preferred borrower from um, uh, an investment bank. On the flip side of that, um, you, you then need to understand complex products like swaptions, right? Which are exactly what they sound like. They are options on swaps, which are various forms of, of interest rate exchanges. Um, when you take that type of product, it's truly industrial strength, right? This is truly an, in, an institutional product that no sane human being has any reason to use. But as you know, within the bond space, like this is actually very common to manage on an institutional process, right? This is the, the way that you take, for example, a floating rate loan and turn it into a fixed rate loan, right? There's a variety of reasons why you might use these tools. In this case, we've taken that, we've packaged it appropriately, we've guided people to the sizing that they should use for different portfolios and created a hedge that is available with simply purchasing a ticker in the same way that you would shares of Coca-Cola, right? So again, the objective is to simplify it for our end users while making my life basically a living hell. Yeah, so Mike, actually uh, on the follow-up to that, you know, you simplify the complex, uh... Uh, process and strategy into a, a convenient wrapper. Um, in terms of the end users that you started to allude to, or allude to, 
how do you simplify the message in terms of, you know, we know in part, a big part of investment managing success there is you know, getting assets to manage as well. Like how do you simplify the, the message and convey it in a way for the end user to, to understand be it institutional or perhaps even, you know, some, some more retail? Well, so one of the things that I think you guys are experiencing is that we simultaneously live in a world of zero attention span and remarkable interest in long form content. Right. And so what you guys are doing with the Sherman show is you're creating a platform under which people can have a long discussion around the merits of strategies that they're pursuing. I've been incredibly fortunate sometime around 2016. Um, I, I, I more accurately. Grant Williams stumbled across me, asked me to come on to what was then a brand new network called Real Vision. Um, that created a platform in which people were very open to long form conversations. And um, we've just been incredibly fortunate to be able to extend that both with our internal brands at Simplify in terms of the Keeping It Simple podcast that we do on a monthly basis, the communications that we have on platforms like Twitter, um, or on other podcasts like this. And our audience is really targeted at the sophisticated individual investor, or more importantly, the RIA, right? And so in a world in which people um, thought everything was going to go automated and that no one was going to require advice, we kind of swung in the opposite direction and said, hey, wait a second, whether it's through a sophisticated robo-advisor platform that's becoming more sophisticated, or through the advice of an RIA, we actually think that those relationships are going to become increasingly and, and incredibly important, particularly for the younger generation as they make that transition to having more assets to manage and to do so in a more professional and organized way. So we spend an awful lot of time on that RIA communication channel and we do everything from putting out white papers to this type of podcast forum uh, to thought pieces that explain the strategies that we're pursuing and help people to understand how they can be deployed within their portfolios. But it's really that kind of um, that target on the near professional investor, you know, clearly professional in terms of the RAA, highly talented on the individual basis, that gives us the ability to have these types of discussions. And I, and I got to be honest with you, like I'm incredibly flattered by the interest that people have um, in either hearing what we're working on or understanding how it can fit in their portfolios. And it really feels like taking investors seriously and trying to offer these types of complex products and do so in a way that is designed to both educate and improve portfolios is a niche that, that it feels like the big guys have missed. So as you think about that, you've given two illustrations to here of what I'll call more on the simplistic idea, obviously the execution you said makes your life a living hell. But as you think about it, it's getting access to the equity market with some downside protection and also trying to generate some level of income in the fixed income marketplace and perhaps a total return by hedging out the key risk within the uh, fixed income market, which is interest rate risk. So as you just think about those two simplistic pieces, and again, I, I'm oversimplifying. Yeah. <laughs> There's a lot of jokes and puns in here on the simplify. Uh, but as I look at it too, I mean, those have been great strategies for this environment. So how do you think about setting expectations on a go forward basis too, as you're looking at kind of what capital market assumptions are there? And look, this has been a great environment for both of those strategies, um, and, you know, probably massively under-owned by uh, many, many clients out there. But well, how do you that's... think about setting those expectations going forward? Yeah, so that, that's the key message. They're underowned, and everyone should allocate to them. But um, no, the um, so I, I think you're, you're you're hitting on a couple of points that I think are really important. One is when we offer a product like PFIX, for example, which is designed as an interest rate hedge. I, I very strongly encourage people to think of it as exactly that. Right? It is a hedge. It is not. You, you, you know, while you certainly are free to speculate in any way that you want, I do want to remind people that this is not a product that you want a performance chase. It's not a product that you want to say, you know, you know, hey, this is absolutely a no-brainer. You know, Jerome Powell has indicated that he's going to be like Paul Volcker. Therefore, interest rates are going to 18%, which, by the way, would be the most amazing outcome of all time in a product like PFIX. But the simple reality is, is that the product is designed to complement a bond portfolio. We also offer it in a form where it is embedded in a bond portfolio, 
Um, another product, that, another ETF we have, AgH, which is actually quite a bit smaller because most people already have bond portfolios. And so they were looking for the hedge to go alongside it. But within AgH, we're combining that product using our recommended hedging strategy, our recommended sizing of the portfolio to produce a bond portfolio that has performed spectacularly, right? We're really thrilled with the performance there. So that's how I would encourage people to think in particular about that type of product is it should be used in conjunction with a bond portfolio or if you're hedging a broader portfolio, fully aware of the risks that the product could lose half or more of its value if interest rates were to rally sharply from here, right? We, we make it very clear to people that one, we actually think that there is a cost associated with hedging, that you are paying a premium associated with that, you know, same underlying dynamic of it costs more to buy a car that has airbags than a car without airbags, right? If we win, you never deploy the airbag, right? What a wonderful outcome. You don't crash your car, you don't run the risk of catastrophic damage, but you're allowed to continue to participate in the market with a degree of confidence that you might not have otherwise had, right? And so that's one of the points we make very clear to people that this is an objective, the, the objective of this product is to give you the ability to participate while avoiding events like, or reducing the impact of events like March 2020 or a crash of 87 or a 2008 sort of uh, environment. Um, on a going forward basis, I, I would encourage people to read some of the stuff or listen to some of the podcasts where I've gone in detail on how I think the changing market structure is actually creating conditions that make this type of strategy even more important. And so, you know, I'm, I'm very well known for my diatribes about the risks associated with things like passive investing and how they have changed market structure, particularly within equities. But I would extend that increasingly into the fixed income market where as fast as passive investing is growing in equities, it's actually gaining share even more rapidly in the fixed income space, right? It's at a lower level, but it's actually growing much more rapidly relative to the growth it experienced in equity markets in fixed income. And that creates all sorts of perverse dynamics, right? Um, passive strategies behave differently than active strategies do, right? When things go up in active strategies, all else equal, people presume that that means, you know, the underlying assumption has to be if nothing else has changed, it makes a less attractive investment. Well, you know, you know that's true in bond land, right? A bond that goes to 150, for example, by definition, has to be less attractive than a bond that goes to that is trading at par, if for no other reason than you know what the capital accumulation dynamics are going to be associated with that. But perversely, a passive strategy that's waiting on the basis of market value is going to put more of the strategy into a 150, you know, a, a bond price at 150 than a bond price to par. Right? And so that's contributed to things like the duration extension that we've seen in the bond indices, et cetera, and created a lot of the conditions that we're currently facing. In my opinion, the behavior of PFIX, for example, is a perfect illustration of the benefits associated, you know, the, the latent benefits associated with hedging those types of dynamics. All right, so let's go to the you know, $8 trillion question then too. Um, the Fed, its balance sheet, hiking into this inflationary environment. Why don't you give me the lowdown of how you're thinking about the macro economy too, because you're not just a pretty quant, you also dug into the macro side too. So why don't you give us some of your thinkings and, and what that means for investors today? Oh, Jeff, I'm, As, so, I'm so excited you labeled me pretty. That's uh, That might be the only time that's ever happened. Um, so look, I, I think the Fed is in the process of making a terrible mistake. And I understand that the, you know, the, um, embedded in the, in the American psyche is a component of Puritanism that basically says we should suffer for our sins of the past, right? Um, we all love the idea that, you know, the Fed has been artificially suppressing interest rates and we have to pay the piper for it, et cetera. Like, you know, there's a, there's a secret fetish associated with that in many ways in the American psyche. Um, it's almost like we're German or something, right? Um, the... <laughs> The problem is that the tools that the Fed has available to itself, basically the interest rate features, are remarkably ineffective at dealing with things like excess consumption, 
right? So the, the, the technical term for this is what's called the Euler coefficient, or it's the sensitivity of consumption to changes in interest rate. And I'm actually in the process of writing a, a piece on exactly this topic. It's very fresh of mind. But you know, the work that has been done to evaluate the impact of interest rate increases on consumption, and I just want to distinguish consumption from things like buying houses, et cetera, which technically falls into the investment category, right? The evidence is, is that no one cares about interest rates as it relates to consumption, right? You don't go to the store and say, gosh, you know, I really want to buy ice cream today, but interest rates are 3%, not 1.5%. Therefore, I'm going to defer the consumption of the ice cream to next year. Right? Well, that might be good for an ice farm. It's not particularly relevant in the context of economic theory or economic behavior. People just don't behave that way. It's too small of an impact. And so the, the work of the, the economist, his name is uh, uh, Robert Hall, um, it you know, effectively says there is no impact on consumption, on the demand dynamics. Where there is a really big impact is on the investment function. And there the multipliers appear to be anywhere from minus one to minus two, meaning a 1% increase in financing costs results in a 1% decrease in investment or a 2% decrease in investment, potentially a two times multiplier and the, the scary part is, is what the US economy needs right now is investment. What we know is going on is, is that we're experiencing supply chain shocks that are a function of us having created supply chains that were too dependent upon China, too fragile, too little investment in robustness in the energy systems. For Europe, it was reliance on cheap Russian gas that obviously is now backfiring in a big way. Right. And so we're, we're facing a condition under which what we actually need to be doing is subsidizing the investment in infrastructure, manufacturing, energy production, transportation networks. It's, I mean, I can keep going and going and going. And the only tools that we have available to us perversely work in the opposite direction. Yes, they will hit things like the housing sector. They will slow down consumption because people are going to lose their jobs. Right? That's the only possible tool that the Fed has available is to cut back investment enough so that people begin losing their jobs, tighten up their purses, and reduce their expenditures. I mean, isn't that really the perverse thing about all this is that you know we talk about, oh, it's interest rates, it's borrowing, it's investment. But really, what the Fed is saying is that we have too many jobs available for any people there are. We want people to lose their jobs. I mean, it, it's, it's quite a perverse, I think, because you come out and you hear Powell when he starts, like he's caring about the American public. He's worried about inflation. He's worried about all of it. But ultimately, the end result is a loss of jobs. Yeah, 100%. I mean, it is absolutely a variant of the parent who says, this will hurt me more than it hurts you as they beat your butt, right? Um, <laughs> like, we know it's not true. It may make him feel better. And the ability to separate interest rate policy from you getting fired, right, is you know, convenient in congressional testimony, but you're exactly right. That's really what he's saying He's, you know, they're, they're saying some variant of, man, this is really out of control. We're going to have to fire you. Sorry. Um, that that's doesn't seem like a great solution. Demand, really, right? I mean, that's really the way that they reduce the demand function, right? It's, it's the only tool that is available. Again, you don't go to the grocery store and evaluate interest rate policy when you decide what to put in your cart but you do evaluate your income prospects as you decide to put what to put in your park, right? In your cart, you replace steak with hamburger, you replace ice cream with nothing, right? You know, which may have its own benefits for the American people. But the simple reality is, is that we're talking about basically taking a generalized hardship in the form of inflation and isolating it down to the subset of the American public that's going to lose their jobs. Yeah, you sound like a man who misses ice cream. I've seen some of your Twitter posts out there too, where you've been trying to cut the carbs too. So congrats on that as well. Thank you very um, much. Yeah, yeah it's, it's a tough thing to do out there. So you know, I, I'm hearing more and more, and I was a little dismissive of the concept at first, but now I'm I'm warming up to it a little bit more. It's the 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 dreaded stagflation word. Yeah. Now where now we're going to deal with maybe a pervasive. Um, inflationary environment. We obviously know growth is slowing. I, I don't have to tell you, I'm sure you saw the, the Atlanta Fed GDP now print from Friday where it's forecasting again a, a consecutive quarter of negative growth and, and pretty negative, by the way, uh, assuming that number comes to fruition. 
So where do you kind of come out on the on this camp too? Is this just part of the inflationary environment we live in where it's going to curtail real growth because again, incomes aren't at the level where have interest rates too low. It's going to take some time to work out. Or is this something that you think can be pervasive and can go on a lot longer than say the market's pricing today? Well, so I, I think the really perverse dynamic is, you know, what we're doing is we're taking that needed investment that I was talking about before that theoretically could translate to improved quality of job prospects, improved potential growth for the US economy, if we were to make those hard choices, right, of we're going to reduce consumption in this area, and we're going to allocate it to another area. Unfortunately, that's really what the type of increase in relative prices that we've experienced has been all about, right? It's saying, we need to figure out how to get more people into factories and fewer people trading crypto, for example. Right, um, you, you know the the decision not to take that process seriously, and to effectively make the easy choice of saying, "Well, we're just going to leave it up to the Fed to quote unquote do something." Right? I mean, this is you know this is the dynamic of, you know, you I, my kids are are largely grown. I'm older than you guys are, but um, you know anyone who was a teenager remembers experiencing that dynamic where their mother is screaming at their father you know he's being disrespectful do something right you know it's like that's effectively what's going on congress doesn't want to make the hard choices of thoughtful policy and as a result we're outsourcing it to the fed whose only tool is effectively surgery with a battle axe right um so you know what that creates, unfortunately, is the conditions of the 1970s, where like the 1970s, we needed an extraordinary amount of capital deepening. Now, the difference in the 1970s was we needed that capital deepening because the labor force was growing so rapidly that if you just think about the dynamics of baby boomers entering the labor force, women entering the labor force, minorities for, among the, for basically the first time in history being able to enter the labor force, in the documented and traditional corporate sector, thanks to the civil rights legislation in the 1960s, right? You had this need that basically said, every single year you need to invest at least 3% in the capital just to absorb the new incoming labor. And if you didn't do that, then you got the characteristics that we referred to as stagflation, which is falling productivity and rising unemployment, right? Um, it didn't have to happen in the 1970s. And it doesn't have to happen today, but we're making the same terrible policy choices. It's just this time around, instead of very rapid growth in the labor force, it's requiring us to have the capital deepening to effectively allow the new entrants to participate at high levels of productivity. We have very slow or even negative labor force growth in many situations. And we need to make the investments that allow us to replace the use of Chinese labor or other labor that we have substituted for American labor in the past two decades, right? Now, that type of investment naturally comes with higher relative prices for many of those manufactured, both um, consumables and durable goods that we um, need, right? You know, so cars, for example, the parts now have to be made here. The tires will have to be made here or in Mexico or in Canada. Right. So we're talking about a significant need for additional investment that, by and large, we've been able to outsource. Um, if we fail to make those investments, yes, we can get prices to fall temporarily in a recession, but we're just setting a lower, you know, we're, we're, we're basically resetting the conditions for an even more rapid increase in prices as demand recovers because we fail to make those investments. Right. So like if the Fed wants to hike interest rates and go after the economy this way, I think it's a mistake. But at minimum, we need to subsidize the investment that's occurring on the manufacturing and logistics and port side to say we need to make these investments so that when we come out of this depressed demand condition, we're in a situation where we can actually meet that. Right. We're not doing that. We're setting up the opposite. And so perversely, I think we're actually giving ourselves the condition that could lead to a spiral of much higher prices and much lower standard of living. Yeah, I mean, um, it's definitely been exacerbated over the last couple of years. And then you see the inability of Congress to do anything, or maybe it's the willingness to do nothing. Um, let, let's think about what's happened as we've seen. You know, We're sitting here right after the anniversary of the first half of the year. 
ugly market, I think in general. Um, was there anything that surprised you about, um, I think Sam called it a market route in his other podcast the other day. Um, you know, is it, does it feel like a route to you? Did something surprise you about this? Uh, I mean, you've been, you've been lambasting, you know, indexing and, you know, the market cap weighted portfolios for a while. So why don't you give me a little bit of download on what, what you, you know, the, the takeaways from the first half of the year, things you've learned, things that were shocking and things that potentially you expected as well. What one thing's reversed? Yeah. So, so, so the, the single biggest dynamic that has quote unquote surprised me, or I would argue has broadly surprised market participants has been the severity of the market sell-off um, in the face of retail continuing to buy, continuing to show up, et cetera, right? What we have by and large seen has not been a wholesale market route all out of the Great Depression with you know, the crash of 1929 where people are lining up in the streets to sell their securities. If anything, what we have seen is persistence in flows from things like 401ks and IRAs, et cetera, where systematic investment strategies simply ask, how old are you and are you employed, continue to put additional capital into the markets, right? Now against that, you've had the discretionary traders, the hedge funds, the discretionary mutual funds, it's, uh, institutional investors, volatility targeting strategies, for example, which reduce exposures as volatility rises. They have reduced their exposures dramatically. Right. And so what you're actually seeing is, in my analysis, the byproduct of a move to passive strategies where when I choose to sell the S&P 500 as either a hedge fund or a mutual fund manager, the minute I go to the spies to execute that, nobody is taking that transaction and then saying, well, you know, within the spies, Microsoft is really attractive and Apple is unattractive and Netflix is terrible. And, you know, there's not that single stock analysis that's going on. It's a very simple model as it relates to passive. And people have heard me use this ad nauseum, but the rules of passive are incredibly simple. Did you give me cash? If so, then buy. Did you ask for cash? If so, then sell right? No consideration of anything else. What proportion should I sell things in? Well, the proportion I own them already, right? If something goes up in price, that makes it a larger portion of the next incremental dollar of investment capital, right? So momentum becomes a dominant feature. People think about momentum, they immediately go to like dot-com stocks or, you know, um, AMC or GameStop. Well, the simple reality is we're seeing this play out in the energy space, which actually became the momentum stocks in the last couple of months. And now we're seeing the consequences of people selling the S&P 500 where energy has become a larger portion of it or the Vanguard total market index or the BlackRock total market index, right? Which are all variants of the same underlying phenomenon. Um, so I, I think broadly people- All inherently have, momentum plays too, right? That's the definition correct. of market cap weighted portfolio is a momentum based portfolio. A market cap weighted portfolio is a momentum play, right? So whatever went up most last, gets the net gets the highest incremental capital allocation to it right, right. Um, and so it creates the conditions that we're broadly seeing um, so i haven't been really surprised by that i've been a little surprised that people are as surprised right i mean what i have told people is when you see these discretionary traders behave in this fashion the other thing to remember is i show up and buy in my 401k Nowhere in that 401k is there a methodology where somebody calls me up and says, hey, markets are down. They're much more attractive. You should buy more, right? No, I, I put X amount every week in. And once that's been expended, it's done, right? Like no additional buyings coming in. No one's saying, you know, hey, things are really cheap. There's not a fund manager who says, you know what? I'm going to draw down some of my cash and deploy it because I think securities are more attractive, right? So we're experiencing the dynamics of very inelastic markets and market participants. And there was actually a great paper. I know you guys are down in Los Angeles. There's a great paper put out by a UCLA professor, Valentin Haddad. I don't know if you guys have had the chance to read it. It's called How Competitive is the Stock Market, where he goes through exactly these dynamics and identifies that passive investment strategies have perfectly inelastic allocation methods, right? They, they could care less whether something went down in price. It doesn't make it more attractive. They're not going to buy more because that happened. So I'm not particularly surprised by that. What it, what, what it sets up bizarrely is a very interesting situation where 
all of the discretionary traders have by and large sold and everyone's looking at retail and saying those idiots they're going to sell soon right they're going to wake up and realize it well you know the most important message that actually came out of march 2020 other than two weeks to flatten the curve or you know we're just you know six six feet of separation will solve all the problems you know the, the most interesting message that came out of that was an announcement from vanguard that less than one percent of their clients had made any changes to their allocations right wow. so like the simple math is nobody cares in these strategies if you're in a target date fund there is nothing in the target date fund that says, hey, guess what? Stocks are down. You know, are you really sure you want to be doing this? Right? It asks you a very simple question. How old are you? And based on that, it makes an allocation methodology. Yeah. Right? And so, so we have this perverse dynamic where, yeah, things are terrible. And yes, I think the economy is, is potentially going to get very bad. But well, as, you, as you think about that, too, I mean, uh, I, I know you've kind of harped on this as well, but you know, are we really creating this other systemic risk if everybody is, you know, using the same methodology, the same inputs that, you know, what spits out is this optimal allocation that comes from modern portfolio theory. Um, but also, are we losing some of this actual price discovery, the allocation of capital, the things that are supposed to make capitalism work, right? We're not supposed to fund the zombie company, right? Just because it has an allocation in the S&P 500, right? We're supposed to do it to the more efficient use, efficient uses of capital. So, how, how do you start to think about all of that? And you know, I, I think it's Bogle that says, you know, indexing is great. Obviously, everybody can't do it. Um, it's a good starting block. But is that really kind of your mission with Simplify as well as say, okay, look, I'm not trying to you know proselytize you. We all have been taught low cost index funds are great as a starting block. Let me help you round out your allocation with some other ideas. Walk, walk me through kind of some of your thinking about that. Well, so, so you hit on absolutely the critical dynamic, right? So Bogle himself said, if everybody indexed, it would be disaster, right? Now, the problem is, is that Bogle's analysis was done using static market shares, right? So he famously predicted we could get to like 80 or 90% passive. Well, the process of getting to 80 to 90% passive, he did not evaluate. And that's really the unique work that I've it's brought. Sort of along the way, right? It's right, exactly. The so, so, so the world we inhabit right now, last year, for example, US equities took in about a trillion dollars worth of net flows, but that was about 1.3 trillion that went into passive strategies and 1 trillion that left active strategies. In other words, when we talk about the market share, if we consider the flow dynamics, passive is well over 100% of the market already, right? And that's change, that changes the calculus quite dramatically. And so you're 100% correct that we're much further through this process than people would argue or think. And I think that's having a huge impact in terms of the behavior that we're seeing. When you see that move to net selling in one form or another, right? So those same active managers then choose to um, net divest, as we've seen on a year-to-date basis. It, it creates the conditions where prices can get forced significantly lower, even as many, are, you know, earnings, for example, are relatively strong. You know, all the all the sh uh, share buybacks have picked up again. Like all sorts of stuff looks like it's totally copacetic, and yet we've had the worst first six months to a year, you know, to start to a year since 1970, right? So with 3.6% unemployment. I mean, this is a, none of this feels normal or right. And I think that's one of the reasons why people are increasingly paying attention to strategies like Simplify. Um, you also hit on an important point, which is kind of what are we bringing to the table or what are we offering or trying to educate people on? And one of the real challenges is that the rules that um, facilitate investment in 401ks, right? The offering mm -hmm. of 401ks by corporations, for example, most of your listeners, when they look at their 401k allocation choices, will discover that the only choices that are available to them are low cost index funds. And that's because, or target date funds, right? And, and the reason why that's happening is because the regulatory environment has changed to create conditions under which companies have to guide investors in that direction. And so well more than 100% of the marginal capital is already going in that direction. You can think about what Simplify does as simply offering a seatbelt or an airbag 
to a car that, that we're like, look, you know, we don't know if this is going to crash, but the odds of crashing are much greater than history would suggest, right? The odds of the behavior that we've seen on a year-to-day basis are much higher than history would suggest. And so we've created the, the derivative overlays that allow us to cushion the impact of adverse outcomes. And, and by the way, just to be clear, actually, some of our products take advantage of the same thing to enhance outcomes in a positive market if that's really what you're looking for, right? We're not trying to be judgmental in terms of the underlying direction. Yeah, so that's actually a perfect time to kind of summarize your thoughts. Um, you know, Sherman mentioned earlier that this is probably for 60-40 investors, this is the worst start to the year, so first six months of the year for, you know, in history. So thinking about the next, let's say, six to 12 months, or at least through the Fed hike cycle, you know, maybe through the recession, what type of um, suggestions or how, how would you think, how would you tell investors they should probably think about positioning their portfolio for the, for the coming months ahead, coming quarters ahead? Well, so unfortunately, I was literally just having this conversation with some of the other uh, analysts on my team. And, it, you know, look, to, to imply that, that we know what is going to happen would, would be wrong, right? Like we, we definitely don't know what is going to happen. But I would characterize what's underway, and, and this should become somewhat clear from the earlier conversation we had around Fed policy, is I think that there is a degree that what we're actually experiencing is almost a Fed choose your own adventure game, right? So if the Fed really decides that they want to tap into their inner Volcker and they believe that the message from Paul Volcker is we should hike interest rates to 15%, right, or to 5% to be wild and crazy in today's world, you know, that's going to lead to a very different outcome than if we decide, you know what, maybe we got this wrong, let's rethink this. You know, I think the entire Volcker narrative has been completely corrupted, where people think that Volcker was this hero who decided to hike interest rates to crush inflation. That's not what he did, right? And going back and understanding that is really important. What he chose to do was to actually target the money supply in a monetarist framework, right? Stealing the ideas of Milton Friedman. That meant that interest rates behaved wildly. And so Volcker actually spent more time in his administration cutting interest rates than he did raising interest rates. But the objective was try to keep the money, the supply of money relatively fixed by hiking and lowering interest rates. That volatility was catastrophic for the economy, right? It basically shut it down and actually created conditions. Alan Blinder wrote a paper on this in 1982, where he actually created his own inflation in the 1980 to 1982 time period um, through the, the nonsense of, of, of driving mortgage rates to such incredible levels of volatility. Um, you know, the idea that we're going to do something similar this time around is just quite simply terrifying to me. Um, for all the reasons that we talked about, my hope is, is that we'll see unemployment start to tick up. And, and you mentioned the Atlanta Fed GDP now, much less cited within that minus 2% GDP forecast is actually the PCE forecast for July, right? That number is fallen to an annualized 0.75%. In other words, the Atlanta Fed is already saying mission accomplished. You've killed the economy. You've gotten inflation down below your 2% target. And meanwhile, the Federal Reserve is talking about hiking 75 basis points at the next meeting. Like this, this I, I, you know, I, I think- They also uh, get the, in fairness, they get the Cleveland estimate, which says it's going to be 75 basis points month over month. Yeah. Right? So exactly. it's like one giving you the annualized, you know, um, and also in that, to your point on the investment side, when you look at the GDP now, I mean, the catastrophic numbers are in personal consumption and private investment, right? I mean, yep. those are the things that have really crushed it as of the, the last latest data point. And, and, and we, we see this and we understand all of these dynamics when we look at it from an economic framework, right? I mean, when you have high volatility of prices, when you have high costs of ordering, when you have uncertainty of demand, what do you do? You reduce your orders, Right? You try to increase the frequency and you reduce the quantity of your orders. And that's what we're seeing in the new orders indexes collapsing. Right, So whether that means we're plummeting into a recession similar to the global financial crisis, or whether that means that supply chain managers are adopting their economic order quantities to a new reality of higher volatility in prices, higher costs, higher ordering costs, et cetera, 
we actually can't know until we come out the other side of this, right? But that's part of what I think is so terrifying about what's going on is everything we're seeing suggests that we should be moving forward very slowly with an incredible amount of humility and recognition that we don't have clear insight into what the data actually means. And instead it feels like on a very political basis, we're, you know, full speed ahead, damn the torpedoes sort of stuff. Yeah. Well, I think that's a good place to kind of wrap this up because always when we use damn the torpedoes, that's gotta be the finale. Um, Absolutely. Right, um, but uh, Mike, you know, it's always a pleasure chatting with you. Uh, for our listeners out there, wh where can they access your pieces of work? What can you get into your inner thoughts? Um, free advertisement for yourself. Too. Absolutely. Well, so let's let's focus it on Simplify. But um, so the easiest place to find us is at www.simplify.us, right? So not .com. I just want to you know make clear to people that somebody else had that clever pun figured out already. Um, but so it's simplify.us. And then if you're not sick of listening to me on podcasts or on YouTube, where you can find my stuff. Um, you can find me on Twitter where I'm at profplum.99, uh, profplum P-R-O-F-P-L-U-M-99. Um, that is a, a long legacy and, and somewhat meaningless play on Mr. Green and Professor Plum, both being characters from Clue. I never anticipated being a public figure or having any, anyone pay attention to my various ramblings. So a lot of that stuff is legacy, but easiest way to find me is, is in one of those two places. All right, great. No, love the reference and too, and uh, the, the work you put out is great. We are fans, so here with the good work. Uh, we'd love to have you back and, um, you know, uh, I definitely pick your brain again later on. So I think when I sent you the note, you said you thought I'd never ask. So uh, now that I've asked, um, be careful. You ask I, mean, again. I, I may mask again. So oh, I'd love it. We enjoyed it. However, before we let you leave, I got to introduce you to Sam's favorite part of the show. So Sam? All right, Mike, and that favorite part of the show is called Sherman Says. It's where I will offer a series of alternating prompts between you and Jeff, uh, to which I hope to get a top of mind, cons concise response. And uh, to pave the way, I'm going to give the first one out to Sherman with factor investing. Thriving. Over to you, Mike, with systematic investing. Short volatility. Back to you, Sherm, with uh, Paul Vol Volcker. <laughs> well, I mean, he was the man, the myth, the legend, but I think uh, Mike, Mike threw some cold water on him. So uh, you know, he's, he's definitely a big man. I wouldn't want to tell him that to his face. But, um, you know, look, Volcker gets a lot of credit for having the fortitude to buck conventional wisdom. And for that, I do think he deserves some of that legendary status. All right, back to you, Mike, with credit hedging. Uh, expensive. Thin markets. Expensive <laughs> right now. There's a cost of liquidity right now. And uh, you know, speaking of that credit, too, if you look at European credit, I mean, it's exploded the cost of that. Yeah. CDX yeah. and things in the last week or so. So uh, definitely uh, looks like more and more people are putting that on. But be careful. The markets are thin right now. And that thinness means things get exacerbated both ways. And, and Mike has many papers on that. So uh, I'll, I'll, I won't steal his thunder. Uh, Powell put. God, I hope so. <laughs> it's lower, it seems like. But uh, uh, European Where energy. Where is it? Where is it? <laughs> <laughs> European energy, Sherman. Catastrophic. Um, but it also should be a wake up call to the US. Um, any of this can happen to us as well. So I think, you know, not only do we need more traditional, we need more alternative sources. Now's the time. We don't have to have one dependency. We can have it many, many ways. So Sam, as the listeners know, put solar in the house and feeling good about it. Not feeling so good when I fill up my gas tank, though. So I got to work on that part. So that's right. All right, here, Mike. Uh, recession. Already here. Ooh. And uh, putting into the final round, f Fed credibility. Huge. <laughs> mm. the, the, the most dangerous game in town. 
All right, and then you're going to wrap it up here, Mike, with Annapolis, Maryland. Uh, one of my favorite places. My son is there at the Naval Academy. Yeah, congratulations on that. Yeah, we just saw that posting too. So congratulations on that. Thank Mike. you very much. I really I appreciate that. That was yeah. a great way to end. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. So shout out to uh, your son. We wish him the best of success there. I'm sure he'll follow in his father's footsteps and do something well. So thanks again, Mike. We really enjoyed it. Uh, this is the Sherman Show pod. You can get this on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play, a bunch of other podcast apps that Sam reminds me of that I forget to bring up every week. Uh, remember, this was July 5th, 2022. All these statements are attributed to Mike Green only. Don't blame Double Line for any of his advice out there. But if you need it, if you want to get some very humorous uh, com commentary out there, the app ProfPlum99 is a highly recommended Twitter follower. So uh, Mike, keep up the good work and look forward to catching up with you soon. Thank you very much, Jeff and Sam. All right. Take care. Bye-bye now. Care, represents Double Line's intellectual property. No portion of this presentation may be published, reproduced, transmitted, or rebroadcast in any media in any form without express written permission of Double Line. Double Line has no obligation to provide any updates or changes. To receive permission from Double Line, please contact media at doubleline.com. Neither Double Line nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast and any liability therefore including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage, is expressly disclaimed. DoubleLine is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice in this podcast. The receipt of this podcast by any listener is not to be taken as constituting the giving of investment advice by any DoubleLine entity or individual to that listener, nor to constitute such person a client of any DoubleLine entity. The portfolio risk management process includes an effort to monitor and manage risk, but does not imply low risk. Copyright 2021 DoubleLine Capital.